if you have your copy of God's Word there with you, let me invite you to take it and be finding your place in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, as you're turning there, Commander Rick Husband was a United States Air Force colonel, was an astronaut with NASA and the space shuttle commander of the Columbia. Many of you are familiar with the Columbia disaster that happened on February 1st, 2003, as the space shuttle broke apart upon re-entry. I remember I was with Anita, we were at her parents, it was a Saturday, I believe, and I remember watching that on the news and just the tragic situation that that was. But Rick Husband was among the seven astronauts who were killed whenever that craft disintegrated upon re-entering Earth's atmosphere. In the book, High Calling, which is the biography of his life, written by his wife, Evelyn, she said that Rick Husband had wanted to be an astronaut ever since his fourth birthday. And so really it was the desire of his life to, uh, to go to outer space and be an astronaut, the dream of his life. But she also said that there was something more important in Rick Husband's life uh, more than anything in the world, even more so than being an astronaut, uh, he wanted his children to know Jesus. And he was a committed believer, committed follower of Christ. Uh, his work sometimes took him away for extended amounts of time and distance. But he was always committed to leading his family to worship and serve the Lord. So much so that on that momentous trip, which would be his last Rick Husband created a videotape with 18 daily devotions on it uh, for his children, uh, one for each day that he would be gone. There was nothing that he could think of that was any better than telling his kids about Christ and reading scripture to his children and praying with his children. But his devotional from February 1st, 2003 included the following words to his daughter, Laura. It's landing day. And hopefully, if the weather is good, I'll be landing today in Florida. I'm certainly looking forward to seeing you, your brother, and mama. Rick Husband then read from some scripture. When he had finished, he prayed for his daughter, and he said this, Okay, Laura, it won't be long before I see you. I love you very, very much. I'll see you in just a little while. Rick Husband wanted both of his children Laura, her brother Matthew, he wanted them to have a daily relationship with God. It's what had changed his life. He knew that it was what would sustain their lives for the rest of their lives. Leading his family to serve God was the highlight of his life. Well, that very same day, February 1st, 2003, Captain Rick Husband, the entire crew of the space shuttle Columbia, they died whenever the shuttle broke apart over North Texas. His life was tragically lost that day, but the legacy that he left behind for his children still lives on even to this day. You know, I think this is a very appropriate verse for Father's Day, but Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 7, the Bible says this, guys, a righteous man walks in his integrity and his children are blessed after him. The way that a righteous man lives his life, a man who places his faith, his trust, his confidence in the Lord, uh, has a way of impacting his children as they watch his life up close and under the microscope. Uh, 
And really, you know, before worship will ever become something that's powerful in the church, it first of all has to be something that's prioritized in our homes. As goes the home, so goes the church. As goes the home, so goes the nation. And so that's why really since Mother's Day, I've been in a series on the home, uh, a series in which we're looking at family relationships and the importance of family relationships. Uh, we spent some time considering the marriage relationship. Uh, in Ephesians 5, we looked at the relationship that wives are to have to their husbands and husbands are to have with their wives. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we looked at the relationship that children have to their parents and the responsibility that parents have to their children. Uh, it's their responsibility to bring up those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And then last week, I began looking at this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is one of the most important passages uh, in all of Scripture as it emphasizes the importance of one generation impacting the next. And so I've been speaking from this subject, uh, building the next great generation. Uh, in this passage, the Bible says that it's within the home uh, where parents transfer their values and truth is conveyed from one generation to the next. And God has so designed the home to function in that way. So if you've got your Bible there, Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want you to begin reading with me there in verse number 1. Moses is giving instructions to the second generation of Israelites that had come out of Egypt. Uh, this is the generation that really had grown up in the wilderness. Their parents had been disobedient to God, and because of fear and unbelief, they refused to enter the promised land, and as a result, they were forced to wander around in the wilderness for 40 long years. And so Deuteronomy, it's a word that means repetition of the law. And that's what Moses is doing in this passage. He's reiterating the truth of God. Uh, he's going back. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, he, he gives the list of the Ten Commandments. Uh, they were first given Exodus chapter 20 at Mount Sinai. But Moses is giving this instruction to the second generation of Israelites. Now listen to what he says there in chapter 6. He says, now this is the commandment the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. Now notice there's three generations that are mentioned there. Uh, you've got uh, a man, his son, and then his grandson. He's calling for multi-generational faithfulness here in this text. Fear the Lord your God, you, your son, your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Literally, uh, it says this, impress this truth upon the hearts of your children. 
Much in the same way that a stamp would impress something upon a piece of paper, uh, this generation was to impress the truth upon the hearts, the lives, the minds of their kids. Teach this law diligently to your children. Talk of it when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, see to it that your homes are founded upon the solid bedrock of God's word. Build your homes, build your lives, stake your family upon the truth of of this word. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Now, let me just take a time out here for just a second. Pay close attention to the fact that prosperity has the potential of being a distraction spiritually. It's not so much the hard times, folks, that we have real issues with spiritually. Often in difficult seasons of life, God has my full attention. But it's often when things are going well. It's often when the cupboards are full, the refrigerator's full, when life is comfortable. It's often that it's easy for us to just drift through the motions and religious trappings and routine and that kind of thing, and we can forget God. And the worship of God becomes hollow. God is warning his people against that. Don't forget the Lord. Look there in verse 12. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. That goes back to Exodus chapter 17. There where the people were grumbling and complaining about having no water and God instructed Moses to strike the rock and water came from the rock. But the the, the emphasis of the text is that the people put the Lord their God to the test through their unbelieving attitude. Verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and statutes which he's commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord promised. Now look at verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of these testimonies, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Now pay close attention to the fact that a younger generation is asking a former generation, why is it that the Lord God is so important in your life? Why is it that the Word of God and the law of God is so 
prioritized in your life. Then, from experience, a former generation has an opportunity to offer an explanation to a younger generation. So Moses is calling here, uh, he's calling this generation of Israelites to this responsibility of giving an explanation to an up-and-coming generation, but it's an explanation that's born from personal experience, redemptive knowledge of God. They have a story to tell. Their life has been changed. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and gracious, and that means they have an explanation then that they can give to another generation. Now, let me ask you a question. Do your kids know your story? Uh, Do your grandkids know your story of how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and why Christ is more precious to you than silver and gold and possessions? Do they see a devotion to the Lord God in your life that's worth emulating? Because that's what Moses is calling for here. Verse 22, the Lord showed us signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt, against Pharaoh and his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he's commanded us. So I'm speaking from this thought, one generation building the next, building the next great generation. In this passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6, there are at least three critical components if we so desire to build up the next generation. And those three components involve investment, instruction, and impact. Now, last week I pointed out this first thought, investing in the next generation. That's what Moses largely describes there in verses 1, 2, and 3, investing in the next generation. You'll notice there that really in verse 1, he emphasizes the importance of the Word of God. If we're to make an investment in the, the next generation, whether that be our kids or whether that be your grandkids, whether that be whoever you have an opportunity to impact for Christ's sake, who's younger than you, it involves a commitment to the Word of God. That's what he says in verse 1. Look at the words that he uses there. Words like commandment, statutes, rules. The idea is that Moses saw the home as the principal delivery system for the passing down of God's truth from one generation to the next. And the responsibility rested squarely on mom and dad's shoulders. So the idea is that God desires for our homes to be saturated with the truth of his word. You see this emphasized even a few verses later, uh, verses 7, 8, and 9. He says things like this, teach these truths diligently to your children. Talk about this law when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. In other words, as you're doing life together, This is important, especially those of us who still have young children in our homes. As we're living out our lives, doing life together, going through the routines of life, it's our responsibility as Christian moms and dads 
to impress the truth of God's word upon their minds and upon their hearts. So the idea is that the word of God is to occupy a prominent place in a believer's home. Our, our homes are to be founded upon the truth of the word. So the word of God is emphasized in verse 1, and then the fear of God is something that Moses emphasizes there in verse number 2. So investing in the next generation involves living in the fear of God. Notice he says that you may fear the Lord your God. You, your son, and your son's son. Multi-generational faithfulness is what he's calling for here. And the idea that the fear of God, it's not running from him like Adam and Eve do after they sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, they run and hide from God. Rather, the fear of God that's described here is that which would lead us to run to God because of who he is. Fearing God means having such a reverential awe for him that it has a tremendous impact on the way that we live our lives. It's this idea of worshiping him for who he is, obeying him, submitting our lives to his word, worshiping him out of a sense of awe over his character, over his nature, over his truth. And Proverbs chapter 1 says that the fear of the Lord, this is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord, this is the beginning of wisdom. So this is where real knowledge and insight for life begins. It begins with the fear of God. So investment, when it comes to another generation, it involves obedience to the word of God, living our lives in the fear of God and modeling that before our children's watching eyes. And then it involves the blessing of God. You'll notice in verse three that Moses says, hear, O Israel, be careful to do these statutes. Obey God's word, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And the idea is that Israel's blessing there in the land uh, would be dependent upon multi-generational faithfulness. One generation uh, making it a priority to obey the word of God, to live in the fear of God, and so secure the blessing of God for the family and for the nation once the nation was there settled in the land. Now let me tell you something. You go into the book of Joshua and Judges, and Joshua talks about the conquest of the land once this generation of Israelites get into the land. They, they, they take the cities, they take the land for themselves. In Judges, the Bible says another generation arose that didn't know the Lord and didn't know Joshua's generation. And so this generation is going to miss the mark uh, when it comes to impacting the next generation. They're going to be so occupied with making a life for themselves in the land that they fail to do what's most important. And another generation arises that doesn't know God, that doesn't know what God did for his people, and the result was chaos and confusion in the land. Moral anarchy in the days of the judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, let me tell you, you look around at what's going on in our country today, and so much of what we're seeing being played out before our eyes through what we're watching on the media, uh, the disintegration of our culture, this stems from some seeds that were sown even a generation ago. 
where now there's a generation that has arisen that believes that all truth is relative to the individual. What's true for you is not true for me. Live your life however you see fit. There's no objective standard for right and for wrong. And what amazes me is that this same generation is so interested in justice. But let me tell you something. Without an understanding of a holy, just, and righteous God who's at the center of your life, then you have no concept of justice. You have a fallen understanding of what's right and what's wrong. So investment. Now, the second thing, and this is what I really want to show you this morning in the time that remains, the second emphasis here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is instruction. Moses has something to say about instructing the next generation. And this is what he says there in verse number 4. He makes this theological statement about who God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This passage was among the most important passages in all of Jewish life, and it represents a, a Jewish confession of faith that's referred to as the Shema, which comes from the Hebrew word which means to hear or to listen. And, and the Shema is taken right from this passage of Scripture. It's still recited at least twice a day by Orthodox Jews all around the world. And so important was this Shema that Jewish boys were required to memorize it as soon as they were able to speak. Uh, the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, you read through the Gospels, you'll find out that he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament book. And in Matthew chapter 22, where on one occasion he's asked by a lawyer, what's the most important command in Scripture? Jesus quotes the Shema taken right from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And it's this idea that loving God supremely and chiefly in life, this is the most important thing in life, and this is what believing parents must teach their children. So if we're to instruct the next generation, what exactly are we to teach them about God? Well, in this text, there are at least three things. Uh, to begin with, we're to teach our children that our God is a God who tolerates no rivals. And that's the emphasis there in verse number four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Down in verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Now, once Israel was established in the land, uh, they were surrounded by nations that worshiped all sorts of gods. But God's people affirmed as a witness to their neighbors that there is only one true and living God, and he alone is to be worshipped. And this truth was foundational to the law. It's repeated over and over again in Scripture. It's foundational to the Ten Commandments. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make for yourself a carved image. In other words, don't think that you can come up with this idea of who I am like, God says, and then worship that idea. That's what it means to make a graven image. And by the way, that's a popular thing that a lot of people think that they can do. You hear people who say things like this. Well, to me, God is like this. Or my God would never do this. Or my God would never do that. Well, if what you're saying doesn't square up with what God has revealed about himself in Scripture, let me tell you, you're, you're just making a carved image for yourself. God's not interested in us making him simply one object of worship among others. He wants the exclusive devotion of our hearts. 
And that's what this passage is reinforcing here. Our worship must belong to him and him alone. And there's a reason in the second commandment why God says what he says. He said that he would visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate him. I've often read that, and a lot of people have read that and says, well, does that mean that there's this generational curse that maybe God will punish me because of something that my dad did or something that my grandfather did? Is he going to punish me because of that? That's not what the second commandment is saying at all. It doesn't say that he's going to punish children for their parents' sin, but that he will punish the sin patterns that children pick up from their parents. And an easy isn't it an easy thing, especially those of you who've had kids come along, your kids maybe are grown. Uh, isn't it an interesting thing how our kids can pick up habits from us, things that we say, uh, things that we do. They can mimic us through their behavior. You've seen that happen. <laughs> and some of it's funny, but some of it's quite scary, isn't it? Let's just be honest. Our belief systems, what we value, what we say, how we live our life, it's easy for our kids to pick up those patterns from our lives. And if there are sinful patterns in my life, it's easy if I'm not careful to transfer that sin pattern down uh, to my kids through the way that I live my life. Reminds me of a story from the Old Testament, Genesis 31, uh, where Jacob, he's fleeing his father-in-law's, he's been in his father-in-law's employment for years. He's married both Rachel and Leah worked seven years uh, apiece for both. The time came, he got tired of Laban cheating him out of all of his wages, and so he flees Laban's household. And Genesis 31 verse 9 says that Rachel, before they leave, Rachel stole her, her father's household gods. The things that she had been taught were so important, the things that she had been taught were important for blessing, Rachel couldn't imagine being out from under her father's watch care and and being away from those household gods because at some point in her life she had been conditioned to believe that those gods were what brought blessing in her life that's why she steals those gods and takes them with them it's easy for for dads to pass their idols down to their kids it's easy for dads to say I love the Lord I worship God but the way that they live their life and the way that they spend their money and the habits that they have in their life can teach their kids something totally different and let me tell you our kids are not so much going to do what we say they're going to do what we do and let me tell you this is a bad piece of parenting advice don't ever tell your kids don't do what I do you do what I say let me tell you they're going to do what you do And they're going to make important what you teach them is important because that's the way that God has designed the home. Uh, This is something that's emphasized in Psalm 78. Keep your finger there in Deuteronomy 6. Go to Psalm 78 for just a second. A psalm that was written by Asaph. It was a psalm that praised the way that God had taken care of his people. Uh, They had received the testimony of God's truth. And Asaph writes this psalm to remind his generation that it's important for them to pass this truth along to the next. Psalm 78, verse 1, listen to this. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. 
We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. In other words, we're not going to let the opportunity pass us by where we have opportunity to tell the next generation all that God has done in our lives. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, that children yet unborn will arise and tell them to their children that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. So Asaph is saying there it's important for one generation to pass the truth along to the next generation and to tell them and to remind them and to instruct them in the works of God. Tell the next generation. Teach the up-and-coming generation what God has done in your life, who he is, and don't let the opportunity slip. So it's important that we teach our kids and teach the next generation that our God is a God who tolerates no rivals. Now, there's a second thing. If you go back to Deuteronomy 6, instruction demands this. We've got to teach our kids that our God is a God to be treasured above everything else in life. He tolerates no rivals, but he's to be treasured in our hearts and in our lives. You look at what verse 5 says. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Love the Lord your God with all of your being, with every fiber of your being. Love the Lord your God. When you think about all that God had done for Israel and how they were blessed above all peoples on the earth, they knew God as the creator of all things. They knew him to be the God who had established the covenant with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They knew him by personal experience. They witnessed his power over the Egyptians as he brought his people out of Egypt with an outstretched hand, brought them through uh, the Red Sea, sustained their lives there in the wilderness. He fed them with bread from heaven, water from a rock, quail from the sky, in all of those 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out, their sandals didn't wear out. God uh, was the salvation and the sustenance of his people. And so they had every reason in the world to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their might. And again, Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. Now let me tell you something. This is not something that law can produce in your life. This is what the law demands. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. That's what the law demands from me, yet I know that I'm incapable in and of my own strength of doing this. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful, wicked above all things. Who can know it? The problem of humanity, folks, it's not all the externals, it's the internals. The reason that there is injustice and the reason that there is all kinds of wickedness and that kind of, it comes from the human heart, the most wicked, corrupt place on earth. And it's not just those people, it's me, it's you, it's us, the human heart. And so if the human heart is deceitful above all things, how in the world could I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my might? 
Well, this is why the new covenant is so important, because Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 says that the day is coming where God's going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. He's going to write his law upon our hearts. He's going to put his spirit in me. He's going to do a regenerating work in me by which he's going to make me alive. And it's a promise that's been given to me in Jesus Christ, because this is why Jesus Christ went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross and died and rose again from the dead not to just make you a religious person, not to just take you to heaven when you die, but no, Jesus went to the cross and suffered and died as my substitute in my place so that he could give me his life, so that he could put a new heart in me, so that he could put his spirit in me, which then empowers me. He empowers me to obey and love God and serve God from the heart. So law is not something that can change the heart of our kids. Law is not something that can change your heart. No, the grace of God does that in Jesus Christ. The law of God shows me just how much I come short, but thank God the law sends me to the gospel remedy and the good news of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. So He's a God who tolerates no rivals. He's a God to be treasured above all things in my heart and in my life. But then there's a third and final thing there in verse number six. We're to teach the next generation that our God is a God who transforms our thinking, our thought processes. He tolerates no rivals. He's to be treasured above everything else in my life, but he's a God who transforms my thinking. Verse six These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You're to teach this truth diligently to your kids. Uh, Imprint it. Stamp it on their hearts and their minds. God intends for his word to be in our hearts. And again, the heart there, the word, refers to the seed of a person's decision making. It's the very core of a person's life. It means that the goal of God's truth, it's not simply to be a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge that led to a change in one's decision making, a change in the way that one thinks and views life in the world. Knowledge of God and knowledge of God's word is to be a grid through which we view the world around us with all of its pressures and with all of its challenges. And let me tell you something, the world we live in, folks, it's throwing pressures and challenges our way and our kids' way like never before. There are so many obstacles when it comes to raising godly sons and daughters today. There was a time in American life where where life was so simple. Uh, You had basically three major news channels, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and that was about it. Now you've got endless news cycles, you've got social media, you've got texting, you've got so much information that's coming at us 100 miles an hour, and and it's coming your kid's way 100 miles an hour, and if we're not on top of it as Christian moms and dads, especially those who have teenagers, we can allow their peers, and we can allow social media, and we can allow pop culture and the world around us to influence the way that they think. When the responsibility has been given to us to impress the truth of God's word upon their minds, upon their hearts, and so transform their thought processes. We would call this a biblical worldview. It's important for us to have a biblical worldview. Don't know if you know who Vody Bauckham is, but Vody Bauckham is a pastor and an author 
One of the greatest books I've ever read was written by Vody Balkum some years ago. It was called Family Driven Faith. And in this book, Vody Balkum basically says that a person's worldview is comprised of at least five basic elements. And he says the first element of a person's worldview is that person's view of God. It's absolutely foundational to determining the way that they live their life, what they live for, how they view life, your understanding of God. And basically, you've got two different viewpoints. Either it's theistic or atheistic. Uh, we would say the God of the Bible. Uh, you believe in the God of the Bible who's revealed himself and who's determined what's right and what's wrong and has given his word to be our objective standard. Or atheism says that there is no God. Secular humanism, which is so pervasive in our culture today, it's founded uh, in an atheistic view of life where there is no God. So a person's view of God is the first component of their worldview. The second component is their view of humanity or man. And basically, uh, there are two varying viewpoints there. Either man is the product of evolution and random evolutionary process, or he's a special creation, specially designed, made uniquely in the image of God. And what a person views about the origins of humanity determines how they view their fellow man. It determines their understanding of abortion. It determines their understanding of ethnicity. It determines their understanding of their fellow man. Recognizing that humanity is uniquely made in the image of God. Let me tell you something. It has everything to do with the way that people view their neighbor. So view of God, that's the first component. View of man is the second component. View of truth is the third component to a person's worldview. And basically, either a person understands truth as being that which is relative to the individual, subject to a person's own opinion, feelings, emotions, or that person understands truth as being absolute, outside of the individual, concrete. Now, you know that we live in a day where truth is viewed with suspicion and truth is viewed as being relative by our culture, which is why, this is why our culture and our, our, our society, we're watching it collapse before our very eyes. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Largely, it has to do with a person's understanding of God, a person's understanding of their fellow man, a person's understanding of truth. The fourth component of a person's worldview is knowledge. Uh, where does knowledge come from? That kind of thing. Naturalism or revelation. God has revealed what's true, what's right, what's wrong. And then the fifth component of a worldview, Vody Balkum says, is a person's view of ethics. What's right and wrong in the world. And either a person's view of ethics will be determined by the culture they grow up in, which can change from one generation to the next, Right? Let's just be honest, those who are older in the room and those who are older who are watching online, you grew up in America that's very different than the America that we now see today. The view of what's right, the view of what's wrong. There was a time uh, when what was viewed right, nowadays, that's viewed as being wrong. That's the cultural view of ethics. And, and that is seen up and against the absolute view of ethics, which is determined by God's word, God's truth. So folks, here's the thing. Here's what I'm saying. God has given Christian moms and dads the unique responsibility 
of instructing their kids and helping shape the value system and the worldview of their kids. That's what God has designed the home to be. And it's been so easy for us to want to outsource this to the church. And we say, well, it's the Sunday school teacher's responsibility to instruct my kids in a biblical worldview. Or it's a Christian school's responsibility to teach my kids how to have a Christian worldview. I'm grateful for Sunday school. I'm grateful for Christian school. I'm grateful for the church and student ministry and kids ministry. But there is no substitute for the home, Amen. for the family. And for the importance of dads and moms making the use of every opportunity that they have. Or that sitting around the supper table with all media devices turned off and you're praying together and talking about a story from Scripture and what it means and truth that God's revealed in His Word and using every opportunity, whether you're driving down the road on a road trip, whether you're sitting at home in the living room, whether you're getting ready to, as you live your life, Deuteronomy 6 says that it's, it's the parent's responsibility to instruct the next generation, to give explanations that are born from personal experience. Now, I want to ask you this question. Do you have a personal experience whereby you know beyond the shadow of all doubt that Jesus Christ has saved you and transformed you and has given you his life and the Spirit of God has come to live in you as a believer. Do you know that you're saved? Can you speak from redemptive experience and then give an explanation to your kids as to why your life is different and why you live in a different way than perhaps the world around us? Let's not get caught up, get swept away with the culture around us. God's called us to swim upstream. Romans 12 says we're not to let this world press us into its mold, but we're to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. And the way that happens is through the truth of God's Word, the leadership of God's Spirit, a life that's surrendered and yielded to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And do you know Him today? If not, then let me just encourage you, right there where you are, whether you're at home, whether you're in this room, Turn from your sin and turn from all self-reliance and place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone who will save you. Whosoever will, let him come. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. Aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ went to the cross to suffer and die for your sin, to pay the price, to pay the debt that you owed? He paid a debt that he did not owe because I owed a debt that I could not pay. And yet through his death on the cross, his redemptive work, through his resurrection from the dead, through repentance and faith in him, the Lord God gives you a new heart, gives you his life. And then you'll have an experience from which you'll be able to offer some explanations to the up-and-coming generation. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, in the name of Jesus, thank you for the truth of your word. And on this Father's Day, Lord, how important it is for us, Christian dads, Christian granddads, grandfathers, Lord, to not neglect the responsibility of giving some explanations to the youngest generation 
that are born from personal experience in our hearts and lives as those who've come to know Jesus. Lord, I pray that if there's any person that doesn't know you today, that wherever they are, in an attitude of repentance and faith, they would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. May we not let the opportunities slip us by to build the next great generation for Christ's sake. Amen.